0: And what, a, what a dangerous prayer to pray, really, isn't it? Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. It's a, it's a dangerous prayer. But one of the challenges is, is knowing God's will. Knowing God's leading can actually be a tricky thing to figure out, can't it? Growing up, in a brethren church, we had this thing called Every Boys and Every Girls Rally. It was basically brigades, but for brethren. And when I was a young teenager, there was this international gathering of rallies held in New Zealand, and I went to it. And at the time, I was slim, with long, golden, wavy hair. <laughs> and I spent most of my time with a couple of mates who were, well, to say they were tubby, would be, would be generous, um, Yeah, so with all humility, I want to suggest to you that I was the pick of the bunch. Um, I do acknowledge that things have changed. Uh, My hair, there's far less of it. It's nowhere near as golden. And one of my kids has me on social media listed as Maddie McFaddy. So I'm sure it's a term of endearment indeed, but... um, it's reflected of the fact that I'm so much more than the boy I used to be, uh, as well. But the result of all, of all this, of being the pick of the bunch out, out of my friends and stuff, the only thing that I really remember about this camp in New Zealand was the girls. As a young teenage male, I enjoyed my popularity with the ladies. Um, and there was this <laughs> I think it was Maren. Look, I won you, sweetheart, so, you know. <laughs> but there was this one girl in particular, a Kiwi girl named Tina. She would later send me a, a letter that was so perfumed that I got a headache just, just reading it. But I was spending a lot of time with Tina and enjoying all of that. And uh, my best mate... Oh, uh, Give him credit. My best mate, looking on, he had concerns about what was going on here. And he was gutsy enough to to express it to me. But I had a trump card. You see, I, you know, the godly guy that I was, I had prayed about me and Tina. And and so I was able to tell my mate the outcome of my prayer, that God said he was okay with it. And, And I look back on that whole situation now, And I think that it is much more likely, rather than hearing God speak to me to give his blessing on what was a very short-term relationship with Tina, I think what I was really hearing were my teenage insecurities that was enjoying a bit of attention from the girls, as well as also hearing teenage hormones that were, you know, doing what teenage hormones do. And so was God really okay with me and Tina? Or was I just interpreting things in a way that made me think that he was? Now, I don't put much store against my discernment at that time. At the end of the day, I was like 12, so what did I really know (laughs) about anything? Now, that's all a very trivial example. But it does show the complexity of accurately discerning how God is leading us. There are so many other factors and variables that, that come into play, not least our own desire to do God's will. I mean, I've seen people you know, effectively paralyzed because they so desire to do what God wants them to do in a given situation that then they end up not doing anything, which probably also still isn't what God wants them to do. So even when, we have, uh, even when we sense that we do have a clear leading, we so often then second-guess it. Maybe it's just what I want, and so I'm trying to justify it with God talk. Maybe it's because of that conversation that I had with someone that just made really good sense. Maybe it's because I really don't want to do that, and so therefore it must be from God. But then God wouldn't make me do something I don't want to do, would He? So, so maybe it's not. Maybe it's just the taco I ate earlier. So so knowing God's will and discerning the Spirit's leading for us, it can be a tricky thing. It can be a confusing thing. And all of that is then further complicated by sin, isn't it? See, Jesus says for us to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, but our default position is to seek first our kingdom and our comfort and well-being. And so... We can so easily get thrown off doing what God is calling us to do because it's harder than we want, because there's more pain involved, because it doesn't work out the way that we think that it should work out. And of course, even with just all of the best intentions, we can just plain get it wrong. Think of the couple who sense God's call on them to go to overseas mission. It's confirmed by them by, by multiple sources. They they end up being commissioned by the church and, and supported by an agency. They they successfully raise their support funds and so they move with their whole family to another country. They spend two years just trying to learn the language and just beginning to get established. And then their visa comes up for renewal and it's denied. Suddenly they're back home. Bewildered and confused. Did they get it wrong, or were they right? And if so, what on earth was God doing in all that? But it doesn't even have to be something like missionaries. I mean, you're sure that God is leading you to do a particular course, but then you fail all your subjects in your first year. You're sure God God is relocating you to a new place, but you just simply cannot find any work. You're sure God wants you to marry this person, but once the honeymoon is over, the the relationship rapidly deteriorates and you don't even know who this person that you married, who they even are. You make decisions for the shape of church life during COVID, but another lockdown slams into place, rendering all those plans void. Were you wrong? Were you right? And either way, what was God doing? Personally, after Jonathan resigned here as the previous senior pastor, I felt great peace about not applying for the senior role. But then I thought, you know, that God was actually, in fact, calling me to apply. And so I did. But I didn't get it. So then I was sure that God was calling me to look for a role elsewhere. I don't know if I've told you this. Probably not. It's okay. I'm still here. It's all good. (laughs) But I felt so sure that God was calling me to a role elsewhere. I felt like Abraham because my, I didn't know where. I just knew I needed to go. And just like God had said to Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. And he just needed to be willing to, to make that move. That's, that's the space that I was in. And so I started stepping out. And yet, as I said, I'm still here. Was I wrong? Was I right? And if so, either way, what was God doing to us? I'm sure you've had your own experiences. Times when you clearly sense God's working and it worked out. And times when you just as clearly sensed it, but you seem to have got it all totally wrong. Or maybe you've got it right, but there is just barrier and obstacle and challenge just every step of the way. Then there are the times when you do something without seeking God consciously. But you just do it because it seems like a good plan. It makes good sense. You've thought about it. You've talked to people. And yeah, this is, this is the way forward. And there's no conscious God-seeking in the midst of the process. But afterwards, you look back on it and you see God's hand in every single step along the way. Discerning God's leading can be a tricky and confusing thing. And so I want to say all of that as introduction to our passage for today. We have three chapters in the book of Acts to to cover today and you'll be glad to know I'm not going to read all of them and I'm not going to go verse by verse. Otherwise, like Paul in Troas last week, we would be here till midnight and, and the morning after. But what we see in these chapters is Paul following the leading of the Spirit, but doing so straight into hardship and into struggle. So let's dive in. If you've got your Bibles, if you open them up, please, to with me to Acts chapter 21. We're in Acts chapter 21 and to 23 today. But once you've got that, actually uh, turn back just a page to chapter 19. In Acts 19 verse 21... Paul, while he's in Ephesus, he says this. After all this had happened, so the, uh, the riots and all the fiasco that had gone on there. Actually, no, that was still to come. After Paul had been there and people had responded to the gospel. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go on to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Now, you might note as you read verse 21, Paul decided, and there's a little footnote there. Uh, in the NIV, it then says that Paul decided in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, just a little um, excursus here to, to say things find their way into the footnotes of the Bible when there are a credible um, translation and reading of the text, but there's not quite as much manuscript evidence to support it remember these texts were, were originally copied out by hand and sometimes an, an overzealous scribe would add their own little notes to the text to make things clearer and so to take a passage like this specifically uh, I'm going to make totally make up figures so don't trust these numbers but a passage like this for instance there might be a hundred manuscripts a uh, hundred Manuscripts from early time that read like it does in the NIV, that says that Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. And then there might be about 80 that read like the footnote, saying that Paul decided in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then there might be, you know, five other manuscripts that have some other variant. And so the translators looking at this, they put into our Bibles that the version that has 100 um, copies. But then they also note, because it's, it's well attested, they note what the 80 people say as well, and then they disregard the five. So a little um, thing about Bible translations and how they work and, and what your footnotes are. But all of that to say, here is Paul deciding, probably with some spirit prompting, but, but otherwise just because it's, it's his own heart and desire and to do that, here's Paul deciding to go to Jerusalem. And then after that, he says that he must, and in the original, there is this sense of must, because God is directing me to do it, I must go on to Rome. So all of this is a Spirit-led decision for Paul, to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Jump to chapter 20, verse 22. Paul is speaking again, and he says, Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So here it's much clearer. Paul is saying that he's being compelled by the Spirit. Experientially, Paul knows that he can't do anything else because he knows the clear leading and even the clear pushing of the Spirit for him to go to Jerusalem. But he goes on there in verse 23. He says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me. So the Holy Spirit is still speaking to Paul. He warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of His grace. Now, I skimmed over this a bit last week, but but get this. Here is the Spirit compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem. And at the same time, the Spirit is warning Paul that as he goes to Jerusalem, that there is prison and hardships and suffering waiting for him. Go to this place, and there will be suffering there. A bit of a confusing message for us. Because if it was us, and, you know, actually, I shouldn't speak for you, I should just speak for myself. If it was me, I would think that ending up in prison is a sure sign that I shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And I think that's where the difference between Paul and us, you know, middle-class Westerners is shown up. Because Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. He's not interested in preserving his well-being. He's willing rather to risk it all to complete the task that the Lord has given to him. His number one priority is obedience to God's will. His number one priority is to do what God says to him, whatever the cost is. And you know, the reality of this, to do what God says... And as a result of that experience, hardship and suffering, this is actually not as far from our reality today as we might at first think. I was thinking about this in light of some conversations I've had recently. Think about the the change of suppression conversion practices prohibition bill that came in last year, this year, recently. Given the society that we live in today, it is not at all unlikely... That one of our young people or one of our young adults, or anyone for that matter, might come and speak to a pastor or a youth leader about a struggle with same-sex attraction. And in that conversation, it would be entirely natural and consistent with our faith to pray for that person. Regardless of any message that's said in the context of that, that conversation, it would be natural that we would pray for them. And such an action could result in jail. So here's my point then. Just because the Spirit leads us in a certain direction doesn't mean it's all going to be rosy and good. So therefore, as we try to discern God's will, as we try to figure out His voice and His leading, we can't base the accuracy of our discernment on what the outcome is. Because we can be led to pray for someone's healing and they remain sick. We can be led to overseas mission and get kicked out of the country. We can be led to share Jesus with someone to have abuse yelled at us and a loss of that relationship. We can be led to move to a new area and not find work. The, the challenging outcomes are not the sign that we discern the Spirit wrongly. We might have actually had it exactly right, just like Paul has. Yeah, at the start of the year I preached on Jesus' temptations from Luke 4. And there we read that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He the Spirit led Jesus into a hard, dry, empty place, into a nowhere place. And I said then, and I'll, I'll say it again now the spirit led life is not all cozy and rosy. It's not all power and healings and wonders. Yes, that is part of the life in the Spirit, undeniably. But the Spirit's leading and work is just as likely to take us to a place of weakness and of vulnerability. Because what Jesus shows us in the story of his temptations, and what Luke shows us in his story here in Acts, is that a Spirit-filled life is one, that is, it's one of humble faithfulness in walking in God's ways, wherever that takes us. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Take me deeper than my feet would on their own ever naturally wander. So then let's come to Acts 21, which is where we're meant to be today. Paul and his companions, if you remember last week, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem He didn't want to get caught in Ephesus, so he stopped at Miletus and called the Ephesian elders to come to him. And he he talked to them and told them that this is the last time they were going to see him. And so at the end of that, Paul and his companions, they finally tear themselves away from these elders, and they continue on their journey to Jerusalem. And along the way, they pause in Tyre. And in Acts 21 verse 4, it says this, we sought out the disciples there, And we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Huh. Starting to get a bit confusing here. The the Spirit is telling Paul to go to Jerusalem, but the Spirit is telling these other disciples to tell Paul not to go. What do we do do with this? Well, have you had the experience of someone coming up to you and and telling you, you know what? God told me that you, such and such. Or God told me to tell you, and fill in the blanks. Now that's all great, but is it something then that you're willing to base your decisions on? Yes, it goes into the mix. But it does need to be held lightly, it does not need to be, be tested. Because what often happens is that these other people actually put an interpretation on the message that they pass on to you. And so here are these Christians in Tyre. The Spirit tells them that as Paul goes on to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. And so they tell him, Paul, you go on to Jerusalem and you're going to suffer, so don't go. They've moved beyond just passing on the message to adding their own interpretation to it. The Spirit gave a prediction and they made a prohibition. And it's not that they were wrong as such, but their human perspective confused the divine message because they loved Paul and they wanted to see Paul continue in his ministry. So if he's going to suffer in Jerusalem, don't go, mate. Stay. Stay free. Keep working. This message, though, comes again to Paul as he and his companions arrive in Caesarea, verse 10 of Acts 21. They're in Caesarea, and after they've been there a couple of days, A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Here the dynamic of what went on in Tyre is spelled out. Agabus passes on the message. And then it's the people who in response plead with Paul not to go. The distinction between the divine message and the kind of human interpretation is clearer here. But, but notice Paul's response as well. He feels the emotional and the relational pull of their pleading, and it would have been so easy for him to give, up to, to give in to them. But he stands firm in his motivation to do whatever it takes to be obedient, not to the will of the people, not to what would be easiest for him, but to be obedient to the will of his Saviour and Lord. And seeing this, seeing this conviction that the rest of them give up, and though they, they might want things to be different, they also submit themselves to the Lord's will. The Lord's will be done, they say. And from there then, Paul makes it to Jerusalem. And he meets with the elders of the church there, and they celebrate when they hear of God's work amongst the Gentiles through Paul. But they're aware, though, that there are many Jewish Christians who think that he's telling Jewish converts to Christianity to turn away from their cultural practices. And so to prove them wrong, Paul himself engages in a purification rite in the temple. And yet his actions are wrongly interpreted, and a mob is stirred up against him. And as a result, this message of the Spirit is fulfilled. It comes true. He suffers. The crowd is beating him, trying to kill him, when then the Roman commander comes with his soldiers and rescues him. Rescues him by binding him in chains and arresting him. Even so, the, the violence of the mob was so great that Paul had to be carried by the soldiers. In, in chapter 22, Paul then launches into this public defense of himself to the crowd highlighting his faithfulness to Jewish observances. And in the context of that, he shares how one time when he was praying in the temple, he saw the Lord speaking to me, telling him to leave Jerusalem. And then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles, which is what Paul did. But at this, the, the mob erupts again. And the commander orders that Paul be tortured to find out what was going on. Uh, though... Paul, at that time, then chooses to reveal, hey, I'm a Roman citizen and you can't do that to me. And so he's uh, spared from that. He's then brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of the Jews, where he pits them against themselves by declaring his belief in the resurrection from the dead. And in the midst of all this drama, in, then we're in chapter 23 by now. In verse 11, it says, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Here, God speaks again, affirming Paul's experience in Jerusalem and continuing to lead him on in the direction he had was already going, in the direction he'd already discerned God was leading him in to go on to Rome. And then the chapter ends with a plot to kill Paul that is discovered and thwarted. And then Paul is sent to the governor, Felix, back in Caesarea. And that's where the story will continue as we pick it up next week in in chapter 24. But in what we've looked at and broad overview of those three chapters, here we have Paul, who is following God's leading faithfully and doing so right into hardship. Ultimately, as he goes on to Rome, it's there that Paul will give his life for Christ. And so where humanly we would look at it and it would seem like Paul has heard God wrong. Where naturally we would think, surely God's not leading him into that. In actual fact, Paul had it right and he was faithfully obedient despite the cost to him. So how do, how do we know God's will? How do we hear the Spirit's leading? Well there's A variety of ways that we see from Paul. Ways that we too can use as we seek to know what God wants from us. Paul's initial decision, as we saw, his initial decision to go to Rome and Jerusalem seems to have been based on an inkling and a desire of his own that was then added to by God. And I think this says to us that sometimes we can overcomplicate things. And that sometimes we just need to do... What well, makes good sense to us and, and trust that God has given us a, a brain to figure things out and if it's you know reasonable, then maybe god's just in that as well. Paul was also part of a team of others who worked out their plans together some traveled by this route Paul went this way they they figured it all out, but what was going on is that there was input and discernment from others in, into the mix of it all there were words of knowledge um, that were that were given to others that were shared with Paul. And the reality is, you know, sometimes we are too close to a situation to discern something well ourselves. We kind of have too much vested in it, and and we realize the stakes involved, and so we second-guess it. And so sometimes having others to step in and to speak into it can be helpful. Paul also received a prophecy over his life from someone with a recognized and proven gift— not just some random, which is not to say that God can't speak through a random person. But Agabus was a proven prophet. There's then also the providential protection of Paul's well-being through all this. Because God is sovereign, circumstances can be just as much a guide to us as anything else. There's then the, the leading of the spirit that Paul receives in prayer and in worship. He also experienced the direct presence of Jesus, affirming and confirming his path and upholding him for the journey. In, in all of this, there was an ongoing and consistent confirmation of God's leading. And it's a leading that wasn't sugar-coated. It, it was a leading that included the hardship that would come for Paul uh, as he followed it, but it was consistently consistent all the time. And so these same means can be used for us as we seek to know God's will. And to them, I would add that we need to assess any sense of God's leading against the benchmark of Scripture, as this is God's authoritative word to us. But even so, given all of that, it can still be unclear, can't it? I mean, God's sovereignty meant that Paul's life was protected, and yet it also meant that Paul was imprisoned. And so when it comes to knowing God's will outside of what is revealed to us in the Scriptures, I mean, we need to acknowledge that we're not the Apostle Paul. And so whatever we receive, we need to hold on to that lightly, with an open hand. And I think too, in in reflecting on it, I think the issue might be less about how do we know how the Spirit is leading us, and that maybe we need to focus more on what we do in response to whatever we sense. See, when God leads... Do we actually follow? When we sense we know what God would have us to do, do we actually do it? Do we, like Paul did, respond in obedience? Because here's the thing. Sometimes God's leading is hard. Sometimes God's leading makes no sense to other people. Sometimes God's leading makes no sense to us. But as best as we have discerned it, when God speaks... He calls us to respond in obedience. I mean, think of Peter in the boat. As Jesus walked by in the storm, he called Peter to walk on the water to him. What? Did he actually hear Jesus right? I mean, that makes no sense. But he obeyed. Think of Paul on his way to Jerusalem and to Rome. As Jesus called him to these destinations, he also promised suffering. What? Did did he hear Jesus right? That makes no sense. But he obeyed. Think of Moses, called to be God's promised liberator of his people who are in slavery in Egypt. God made him a shepherd first, without power, without prestige, without influence, and sent him to make demands of the greatest superpower of the ancient world of the time. What? Did Did he hear that right? I mean, it makes no sense, but he obeyed. Think of Jesus himself. He lived his life listening for and obeying God's will. He was the Son of God, the Messiah, inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth, and the path to this crown was through the cross. God was with him. He did everything right, yet he still ended up crucified. What? Did he hear right? It makes no sense, but he obeyed. What about you? What is God speaking to you? It may not be 100% clear. You might not have all the answers that you want, but are you obedient to what you do know? Obedience might not be easy. It might not lead to what we think of as the good life, There may be suffering as a result. It may require us to do something that is hard for us. But are we being obedient to what we do know? See, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who loves me will obey the things that I say, the things that I speak to them. So like Paul, do you love Jesus more than your comfort, more than the familiar, more in your own life do you love jesus enough to obey him because we may not be clear on what the spirit is leading us into in a given situation but we do know generally what god wants of us he wants us to become like his son as we live under his rule and reign and so there's plenty that is clear we are called to abide in him We're told that we need to forgive someone who wrongs us 70 times 7. We're told that we are to love God with all of our heart and mind and strength. We know that we need to love our neighbor. Even worse, we need to love our enemies and bless them. We know that we need to lose our lives for his sake. We're told... That what we need to do is store up for ourselves treasures, not on this world, not on this earth, but in heaven. We've been commissioned to go and to make disciples, to teach others all that Jesus has commanded us. We could go on and on. So what is God saying to you today? You know, in lots of ways, as I reflect on my message this morning, I've probably spent more time on the challenge and the difficulty of knowing God's leading. But here's the reality that I want us to go with. God still speaks to us. God still leads us. He leads us to become more like Christ. He leads us to live in his kingdom. He leads us to serve in his mission in the world. God still speaks. He speaks through his word he speaks through His people. He speaks as we pray. He speaks to us sometimes in dreams and, and visions. He speaks circumstantially as, as situations and, and things just work out providentially as He sovereignly rules over that. He leads us, He guides us, and He speaks to us. So what is it that God is saying to you today? It may not be about who you are going to marry or about what house you should buy. But it will be about how you can become more like Christ. So what's God saying? And maybe more significantly, what are you going to do in response? How will we obey? Let's pray together. And as we come to prayer, and our desire to listen to what God is saying and to follow His leading, I'm reminded of what Roderick shared from the scriptures a few weeks ago about so much of our desire is about control. And in that context, it's, there's just noise and violence. We don't want noise and violence. We don't want control. We want to relinquish that to God in surrender. So let's be quiet before him then. As young Samuel laid in his bed saying, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. May we be quiet before him now, relinquishing our control to hear what he would say to us. is the Spirit saying to you today. And God, as we come in prayer, we want to also come with repentance for those times when we've heard you and we've ignored you. Or even worse, when we've disobeyed you. Thank you for your grace that forgives us of those times and yet doesn't give up on us, but continues to speak and continues to lead, lead us. So we want to say sorry for not listening and sorry for not obeying. And we ask then, God, that you would give us a desire to obey whatever it is you speak to us, however it is you are leading us. Give us the desire and the faithfulness to follow you And in all of it, God, whether it leads us into a blessing, whether it leads us alternatively into suffering and hardship, whatever it is, God, our desire is that you would make us more like Jesus. As we listen to his voice and his spirit within us, make us more like him. May we lose our lives that we may gain it. May we give up our control and rationality that Jesus would be made much of. May we obey because we love, we love Jesus. And in honor and worship to him, we just want to become like him. So we pray this, God, in Jesus' name.